Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. everybody uh, back uh, Suture Study Sunday. I'm your host Michael. Uh, tonight, uh, new Sutra tonight. Um, I'm sort of probably going to actually read from four different sutras that all have to do with a Buddha called Bhaisajya Raja, also sometimes called Bhaisajya Samudgata, also known as the Master of Healing, Bhashajaraja, the Lapis Lazuli Radiance Tathagata. Um, this is a Buddha. In fact, it is this Buddha that we have on the wall here, sort of the patron Buddha for the center here, I suppose. Um, Bhashajaraja is called the Healing Buddha. The Medicine Buddha is sort of a more commonly used uh, name for him. Uh, he does have several Buddha, uh, sorry, several sutras dedicated exclusively to this Buddha, the Master of Healing. But interestingly enough, and I want to kind of start to unpack this tonight. <clears throat> interestingly enough, this Buddha in Buddhist literature in the sutras begins actually as two s- distinct bodhisattvas, one called Bhaisajaraja, the other called Bhaisajasamudgata. And so they, these two kind of like twin Gemini Bodhisattva souls, I don't know, they always appear together. Um, so they have started to appear together in some early sutras. And somehow, again, I kind of want to unpack this tonight, but somehow these two Bodhisattvas merge and become just Bhaisaja Raja Buddha here, just the singular Buddha. Did they both get enlightened and become one Buddha? You know, we're not quite sure. Again, I want to kind of talk a little bit about the, the Buddhology of it all. Um, but along those lines of Buddhology, in terms of what we're talking about here tonight, we are sort of taking a, a deep dive into what would be called Pure Land Buddhism. If we had to categorize this type of Buddhism, we would call it Pure Land because... By Raja, the healing Buddha indeed has his own pure land, his own other world to the east of here. Um, and there are descriptions of his pure land and what makes pure land Buddhism, pure land Buddhism, of course, is a emphasis on devotion, otherwise known as bhakti in the kind of Sanskrit Indian tradition. Um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Faith and devotion, kind of bhakti, uh, towards Buddhas and a particular Buddha, uh, a specific Buddha, the healing Buddha, um, and sort of reading from these sutras, these Pure Land sutras, and seeing how this type of Buddhism works, because this is going to be different than some of the other Buddhisms we've talked about. This is going to be different than a lot of the sutras we've talked about, and all of that. So... Um, this, uh, I have to point this book out, book called The Healing Buddha by Raoul Birnbaum, best book on this Buddha that you could find. Um, he has not only translations of 
several of the most important healing Buddha sutras back here, but then the first half of the book is like an excellent history treatment of the medicine Buddha, what he's all about, all of that. So a lot of what I'm talking about tonight is coming from this book. Um, here's, interestingly enough, here's how it begins. It begins actually not just with these two bodhisattvas, Bhaisajya Raja, and if you hadn't noticed or picked up on this word, Bhaisajya, who, that's this Buddha's name, Bhaisajya, but the word in Sanskrit means healing. Raja is a king, so healing king, bodhisattva healing king, and then bodhisattva Bhaisajya Samudgata. But what's very interesting is that it appears in the earliest sutras in which this is mentioned. It is not a bodhisattva. It's not a being. It's actually a substance. It is the supreme healer, the supreme healer. And through some kind of linguistic analysis and etymological research, it kind of actually looks like the Bhaisajya Samudgata, the original healing healer, was the stone lapis lazuli. Which there's also interesting connections to this that if you didn't know that in like Arthurian legends, Parsifal, that kind of Christian stuff, the Holy Grail, long way before Indiana Jones and all of that, and it was a cup, the Holy Grail was actually the philosopher's stone. And it was a thing, not a cup. It was a stone, a philosopher's stone. And actually, the Holy Grail in the Arthurian legends was lapis lazuli. Just interesting. Little, what, what's going on there? Um, you should know, of course, that this stone, lapis, means stone, lazul, azul, a blue stone. It is the blue stone. But lapis lazuli, this interesting blue stone, has had a long history in a lot of different cultures for having curing <coughs> and healing properties. That will lead us to this full Bhaisajya Buddha, who is the master of healing the lapis lazuli radiance Tathagata, or Buddha, whose body is said to be made of lapis lazuli. And his pure land is like the streets are made out of lapis lazuli, and the trees are made of lapis lazuli. Kind of an idea. So there's this deep connection between this Buddha and this idea that we're talking about tonight, and this lapis lazuli stone, okay? And it begins with, again, the first references to Bhaisajya Samudgata, or that it's a thing. Okay. Uh, let me start with this beautiful little section of the Shurangama Sutra, um, old sutra, old Mahayana Sutra. Um, I'm actually going to start reading other sections of the sutra in weeks to come. I want to dive into the sutra. I think this is going to be a fun one for us to look at. Um, so this is on the docket for later on down the road. Uh, but this is a section of the sutra where the Buddha is asking all these different bodhisattvas to describe basically how they got enlightened. Like what was it that caused them to become enlightened? And the little section of the sutra here is called Meditation on uh, the Six Senses. And so each of these um, bodhisattvas step up and like the first one basically gives an instance of how 
he had heard the teachings of the Buddha and therefore he was uh, awakened by the sense of sound. Um, let's see here. And then a bodhisattva named Fragrance Adorned then rose from his seat, prostrated himself with his head at the feet of the Buddha and declared, after the Tathagata, the Buddha, had taught me to look into all worldly phenomena, I left him and retired to set my mind at rest. While observing the rules of pure living, I saw the bhikshus burn sandalwood incense. In the stillness, its fragrance entered my nostrils. I inquired into this smell, which was neither sandalwood nor voidness, and neither smoke nor fire, and which had neither whence to come from nor whither to go to. Thereby my intellect vanished, and I achieved the state beyond that of the stream transmigration. The Tathagata sealed my awakening and named me Fragrance Adorned. After the sudden elimination of, of the smell, the wonderful fragrance became a mysteriously all-embracing. Thus I attained arhatship by means of smell. As the Buddha now asks about the best means of perfection, to me, smell is the best according to my personal experience. And then goes down to actually the very next one. Then the two bodhisattvas called Bhaisajya Raja and Bhaisajya Samudgata, who were present with 500 Brahma Devas, then rose from their seats, prostrated themselves with their heads at the feet of the Buddha, and declared, Since the time without beginning, we have been skillful physicians in this world and have tasted with our own mouths herbs, plants, and all kinds of minerals and stones found throughout this Saha world numbering 108,000 in all. As a result, we know perfectly their tastes, whether bitter or sour, salt, insipid, sweet, or acrid, their natural changing or harmonizing properties, and whether they are cooling, heating, poisonous, or wholesome. We received instruction from the Tathagata and knew clearly that taste was neither existing nor non-existing, was neither body nor mind and did not exist apart from body or mind. Since we could not discern the cause of taste, we achieved our awakening which was sealed by the Buddha who then named us Bhaisajya Raja and Bhaisajya Samudgata. We are now ranked among the sons of the Dharma king in this assembly and because of our awakening by means of taste, we have attained the Bodhisattva stage. As the Buddha now asks about the best means of perfection, to us, taste is the best according to our personal experience. And it goes on, but that's not my point. My point is, is that the story of the origin of either Bhaisajya the Buddha or these two bodhisattvas, this story is a classic story. This is sort of one of its main sources, but it's this idea of a being or two beings who go trying every single herb, every plant, every mineral, every everything, with the idea being that, you know, something might be poisonous and they keel over and they're reborn. And then they go right back at it. And then they, you know, figure a few more things out and then they get poisoned again. And they're like, remember, got to remember that one next time. <laughs> and they just keep going around and around and around. And the idea of it, again, whether it's two bodhisattvas, we can sort of like, like muse on what's going on there, but whether it's two bodhisattvas or just this past lives of this one Buddha, the idea is, is that 
who or what, what is the medicine Buddha? The medicine Buddha is that body of knowledge that has been accumulated. Yes, by the meritous acts of these bodhisattvas or this bodhisattva. But you can conceive of like, well, what, what's a Buddha? Like, what, what are we talking about here? A, f- a fat guy doing meditation? Like, what is it? Well, one Mahayana way to think of a Buddha is as a body of knowledge, a body of wisdom that's just there to be had, if you know what I mean. The, the medicinal qualities and properties of all these herbs are known, are they not? And the idea that they are known, and you might think, well, but I don't know them. Yeah, but they are known. And so that knowledge, that knowing is the medicine Buddha. And that medicine Buddha is powerful. I'm here to tell you. Okay, so that, I, that knowledge, that, that wisdom that exists there is, is something. Um, and that story, again, that story of either, again, one bodhisattva or two having gone lifetime after lifetime after lifetime trying everything is the, the uh, origin story of this, this, this bodhisattva. But there's another origin story of the healing Buddha, the medicine king Buddha. All right? Um, yeah, I'll tell you just more about this in general. This all gets very tricky with Buddhism in particular too because um, you have to have a certain poetic mind to appreciate a lot of this. If you have a very literal kind of scientific mind, it, it gets tricky. But there is this general metaphor used in Buddhism of the Buddha, not by Shadja, not Amitabha, but all of them. Shakyamuni, the original Buddha, all of them. The metaphor is is that the Buddha, a Buddha, is a great physician, is a great doctor. And that the idea, the metaphor of the Buddha as a great physician or a great doctor comes from this notion that we're all sick from this illness called life. Right? The dukkha that comes, the suffering that comes with this life, we're all suffering from it. It's the illness, the anxiety, the stress, those are all symptoms of the illness of life. And the Buddha is regarded as a great physician that came with the cure, that came with the antidote, that came with the cure for the illness of life. It's called the Dharma, it's called this teaching, this truth, all of these ideas. That's the antidote. And so within Buddhism in general, there's this idea that the Buddha, any Buddha, is a great physician. And that the Dharma, these truths, these teachings are this wonderful medicine. So then what starts to happen is, is that what is the Bhashaja Samudgata, that, that substance that's the healing, that great healing substance? Is it a big chunk of lapis lazuli? Maybe it's a big chunk of lapis lazuli, but it's the Dharma. The Dharma is the Bhaisajja Samudgata. That is the great supreme healer. That if you could really teach someone the Dharma, that would be the greatest medicine you could give them. It would cure all their ills, is the idea. So what starts to happen is, is that the Buddha, maybe it's just Shakyamuni, our great historical hero or whatever, right? But this relationship between, ah, the Buddha is like a great doctor, a great healer. What happens when that idea that the Buddha is a great healer, or a great doctor, what happens when that just kind of splits off and becomes this, its own idea? 
That's what happens when the idea splits off and becomes its own idea. Or at least I'm giving you one possible interpretation for Pure Land Buddhism and where these other Buddhas come from. Amitabha Buddha, for example, this Buddha, is said to represent the Buddha's great compassion. Not the wisdom, not the crazy emptiness stuff, and not this great healing power, but just the compassion. That's what he represents. And so if you need a boatload of compassion, you go to the embodiment of compassion. But if you need some actual physical healing, you're actually sick. And now I am talking literally. You're sick. You got a cold. You have a problem. You got a surgery coming up. Whatever it is, this is your Buddha. Uh, and this is like the energy, if you will, or at least the practice around this Buddha for thousands of years. You, if you listen to Raoul Birnbaum, he's talking most of these sutras go back to at least B.C., right? So we're talking like at least right before the common era. And so they're at least 2,000 years old. If not even, you know, we're talking some of the earliest translations into Chinese happened in like the year 100 or even less. And they're, so that's at a point where these things are being translated. They're so popular. They could be hundreds of years old. But they're at least 2,000 years old that there has been this, these splitting offs of the properties of the Buddha in order to have just a relationship with that Buddha. And from Central Asia, Afghanistan, China, Japan... Korea, this Buddha of healing became very big very early on. So that by the year, oh, 200 AD, 300 AD, this was the Buddha for a while for a lot of people. The Buddha is the great healer. That's it, period. Yeah, he's got a lapis lazuli body and he's the great healer. I don't want to, not that I don't want to hear about any other Buddha, but there just doesn't need to be any other Buddha. This is, this is it you kind of get these like cultish movements to Baishadja. In today's world, this Buddha is the Buddha that's waiting around for you when you need him for when you're sick or someone you know is sick or it's a health situation. That is this Buddha's raison d'etre, his reason for being, is the healing Buddha in that way. This splitting off, does mm -hmm. this, this possibly influence the idea of patron saints in the Catholic Church, like he's like whoever, it's like no, I need that guy right now. That's what I need. Think maybe I'm always the type of person to be like maybe, but also maybe there's just this like innate human tendency maybe. to kind of do that. And when Christians did it, it looked like that. And when Buddhists yeah. do it, they did it like that. I'm not entirely sure. I of course have always I'm often espousing how baptisms and rosary beads and all these things were in deep Buddhist use way before their Catholic use. Okay, so if you just study the history, the, the Buddhists were doing a form of ritual baptism way, way before Catholics came along. And you could start to argue, oh, they got it from them. And there's, you know, there's a certain way that you could make that argument. But you could also just make this argument of like, People dunking themselves in water for purification, it's kind of intuitive kind of a thing. So the fact that multiple people were doing it here and there could just be sporadic. So, But yeah, it's very much, no matter where it came yeah. from, it's very much like that in the Catholic tradition where you know 
oh, these bodhisattvas, I can get to them. Even if I lose my car keys, there's this bodhisattva. But I'm not going to go to the Buddha for that. I'm not going to go to Jesus for my car keys. Like, there's a similar thing that goes on in, in, in Pure Land Buddhism, where yeah. these Buddhas are, there's worship and reverence going on. Okay. So, um, so I'm doing a few different things here, but of course... I've transitioned from this idea of the Dharma as being the great healer to know that they're actually talking about if you're sick. So I want you to know that the origins of this idea of the healing Buddha, it may have been in some deep Dharma ideas, but in the world today, it's very practical in that way. Meaning there are particular rituals or devotions? Or I'll get to that. Okay. I'll get to that. But what I, what I am trying to say, though, is that the practice... And religion around Baishadja is very practical. Okay. It's very much about, like, I'm sick, help me out. Okay. That kind of real-world difficulty. And I kind of, like, tonight almost would, you know, really want to take all of our heavy Abhidharma emptiness stuff and kind of put it aside a little bit tonight. Because this bhakti stuff, the devotional thing, it's for real. It's like really, really real. It's a really, really, really real practice to do that, if you know what I mean. Real in the sense that people do it. No, like real powerful. Really, really powerful, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Like there's a way in which, I don't know, maybe, you know, if you have a certain Christian upbringing and so the idea of like, pews and kneeling and kind of doing this stuff is like that's not buddhism buddhism's empowering it's going to teach me to like fly on clouds not to humble myself and not grovel and all of that well i tonight i want to talk about that i do want to talk about the the submission the islam as as is it said in arabic right this surrendering of oneself a certain moment where you realize i can't do this Yeah, like I need help. <laughs> and that's, yeah. Uh, so let me give you, so now that we know a little bit more about where, what we're dealing with, this is going to be one of the, f- another one of the first mentions of this Buddha. You might have mentioned or noticed that in this one, uh, these two bodhisattvas are mentioned in the list of a bunch of other bodhisattvas, and these two happen to trip out on uh, on taste and another bodhisattva tripped out on smell so like they, they do appear in other places in here but it's kind of a light reference this is going to be one of the first sutras that's really about this bhaisyajya this healing um, and again this is I'm only going to read a part of it and it's just to give you a taste for what these pure land type sutras sound like is this when so this is the sutra this is the sutra spoken by the Buddha on the contemplation of the two bodhisattvas, king of healing and supreme healer. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha dwelt at the monastic abode of the blue lotus pond in the monkey grove of the state of Vaishali. And if you remember, Vaishali is where Vimalakirti lived. A lot of weird stuff goes down in Vaishali. Together with him was an assembly of 1,250 eminent monks, including Mahakashapya Sariputra, Mahamudgulayana, Mahakatyayana, and other learned disciples, 
Also, there were 10,000 bodhisattvas, including Bodhisattva Wonderful Arm, Bodhisattva Skillful Voice, uh, Bodhisattva Jewel Virtue, Manjushri, Maitreya. There was also Avilokiteshvara, Mahastama Prapta, Bodhisattva King of Healing, and Bodhisattva Supreme Healer. Uh, at that time, and further, 500 Lichavis of Vishali, including the elder called Lunar Canopy and his son, Ratnakutna, Jewel Heap, and others. So at that time, the Buddha entered into a samadhi called Universal Light. All the pores of his body emitted multi-hued rays illuminating the monkey grove with the colors of the seven precious substances. The light rising above the grove became a jeweled canopy and various phenomena rare to the realms of the ten directions appeared underneath that canopy. And then Jewel Heap, the elder son, rose from his seat, faced Ananda's place and addressed him, O virtuous one, Today, the Lord has entered into this samadhi, and his entire body has blazed with light. Surely he will speak on the sublime doctrine. I sincerely wish, O virtuous one, to know when he shall do so. Ananda replied, Son of the elder, the Buddha has entered into samadhi. I dare not ask him. When he said these words, the Buddha's eyes radiated light which illumined the foreheads of the two bodhisattvas, king of healing and supreme healer. Above their foreheads, all, oh, above their foreheads, all the limitless Buddhas of the ten directions dazzlingly manifested like a diamond mountain. And all these lords also emitted light from their eyes, which universally illumined the foreheads of all the bodhisattvas in the assembly. Above the foreheads of the bodhisattvas, all the bodhisattva mahasattvas of the realms of the ten directions, who had attained the Shurangama Samadhi, brilliantly appeared, resembling a lapis lazuli mountain. At the manifestation of this mountain, a jeweled lotus blossom arose from the Markatapand, it was the color of a white gem, but this color was a white so rare that there is nothing to which it could be compared. Various manifested Buddhas were seated on the lotus blossom, their bodies subtle and sublime. They too entered into a samadhi, each radiating light from his eyes, which illumined the foreheads of the two bodhisattvas, king of healing and supreme healer, and further illuminated the foreheads of all the bodhisattvas. At that time, the Lord withdrew from his samadhi. With a subtle smile of radiant harmony, the Buddha exhaled through his mouth five colored rays, which completely illumined his full moon-like face. Then there were manifold changing manifestations of light from the features of the Buddha's face, which appeared a million times more glorious than his ordinary appearance. That's just a little taste of A, if you've never heard of Pure Land Sutra, that's how they sound. They're crazy, lights coming out of people's foreheads, beaming into other people's eyes, causing them to light up like you know Christmas bulbs. I mean, 
It's wild stuff. And I wanted to introduce you to that idea in particular because of this relationship between Vaishadja, this healing Buddha, and this emission of light from the body. There seems to be a connection in, in the mythology of Vaishadja, something about emanating light from the body. Just want you to, I'm going to read a few more, but I just wanted you to hear that initial one of the Buddha in his meditation, sort of boop, like beaming this light, illuminating these bodhisattvas' foreheads, and then this sort of chain reaction of like vision, right, of enlightenment, right? So that's sort of what's going on there. Any questions so far about Vaishadja, where we're at, <laughs> what we're talking about? Yes, sir. The beginning of that text talked about the seven substances. Was it one of those lapis removed? Indeed, one of the seven precious substances, so Buddhism talks about this all the time, gold, silver, lapis lazuli, agate, and then actually there's different lists. So gold, silver, lapis, and agate tend to always be in there. And then you'll get things like a pearl or like mother of pearl, alabaster. You'll get um, uh, sapphire. You'll get a ruby. So you'll get other ones, but lapis is always one of them. You should know just there's a deep connection also between lapis lazuli and this cosmic Mount Maru. Mount Maru rises up, right? And what it, it, in the mythology of Buddhism, the, the side of Mount Maru that we're on, so the, the, our, like, um, this is Mount, the giant Mount Maru, of which, by the way, like, the, these are the Himalayas. This is Mount Everest. So, uh, for comparison. Um, now, traditionally, what they say is there's this triangular-shaped Jambudvipa, where we live, and then there's a continent on this side, and a continent on this side, and a continent on this side. And, and this is all, like, you know, an enclosed situation here. But what they say is, this is traditional is that this side of Mount Maru is made of lapis lazuli, and it's actually why, in terms of the refraction and reflection of light, the reason why the sky is blue is because it's all reflecting off this lapis lazuli side of Mount Maru. So, a little addition to that. Yeah, so a lot of interesting connections between that. Your mention of the seven precious substances, though, jogs my memory that there's also this deep connection between the number seven and the, this Buddha, the Bhaisajya. Um, you'll often see seven of him in a row, like seven different Bhaisajyas, or a lot of his rituals have, are in sevens, chanting in sevens, or for seven-day periods, purifying yourself for seven-day periods, Lots of sevens upon seven upon seven. This has a lot to do with the tradition in Buddhism that the afterlife has a lot to do with the seven, in particular seven sevens, so 49. So there's an understanding in Buddhism that the disembodied consciousness 
energy thing cruises around for seven, seven days or 49 days before it shoots back into the world. Um, and so that relationship between those seven, seven day periods and by and chanting in sevens, it's all connected. Like there's, you know, other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have other n- numbers and things they're related to. Baishaja and the number seven. Baishaja and lapis lazuli. Baishaja and healing. Uh, Baishaja is uh, very, uh, almost always represented like that <clears throat> in the, um, this, the offering, the dhyana mudra, the giving mudra. So he's a giver. That's the power of this mudra is basically if you see a Buddha doing this, they're like, what do you need? What do you need? And that's like, oh, dude, I, you know, whatever it is, that mudra is like, ask, is like, yeah, what do you need? I got it. And then that's doubled up when he has the begging bowl, but it's not actually a begging bowl. It's sometimes a begging bowl, but then it's also usually a flaming jewel called a sita or tita mani jewel. Uh, mani is like om mani padmi home. This is just a general jewel. And then a tita mani is a wish fulfilling jewel. And these are these special stones, not made of lapis. They're different, but they would be these, traditionally they were these special jewel, like maybe even fired. There's, there's etymological indications that they were, crisp, they were fired, so they're glass maybe. But this person that would make a sintamani would basically put your wish in it. You would come to them and, and you would be like, this is my wish, and then they would either blow or, again, all of this is a little cryptic, but they would make you a sintamani jewel that would glow and, and it would grant your wish. That's an old... Indian thing, not Buddhist per se. It's an old, the Sintamani jewel's been around and I've been trying to figure out whether they are glass or crystal. Like I've had my own little curiosity about what a Sintamani jewel was. But in Buddhism, it winds up in the lap of Vaishadya. And so it is also the wish granting jewel. So he's kind of got you two ways. He's got your, your, the mudra of offering and the wish fulfilling jewel. There's also a fruit. It's a South Asian fruit called a, a palobilene. Palobilene. Anybody know this fruit? I've never, I don't even think we can get them here. I think it's called a P-A-L, maybe L-L-O, maybe just one. It might just be one L because it's a palobilene. They're kind of like a South Asian, some sort of a like a jackfruit type thing, small jackfruit type of thing, I think. Never had one. But it supposedly has great, you know, antioxidant properties. I don't know, but it's supposed to be in a really amazing fruit. And this palobaline fruit, which he has one in that picture, is also this like fruit of immortality type of a thing. So he'll have this fruit or the sintamani or sometimes just a begging bowl and then always this mudra. So that's his uh, iconography, if you will. Ooh, speaking of which, this is a, a good little book. Just It's kind of coffee table-ish, but it is, it's decent, called The Buddhist Way of Healing. 
And in it, I'll pass it around, but this is a beautiful mandala of Baishadja Buddha, Baishadja Raja Buddha's Pure Land. And when I pass around and you look at it, what you'll notice is, and if you were here for my mandala class, you'd be like, wow, why didn't you show that? So all of these entryways in, you'll notice that it's all different plants. This is a, uh, who is that guy? The, uh, that, uh, the plant guy that all the drawings? Pliny? Yeah, the... Pliny the Elder? No, no. Is he the one that's... No, no, there's another guy that is the illustrator that did all the things. But I was thinking that guy. Anyways, it's, all, it's basically a pharmacopoeia of plants around it. So in terms of mandalas containing vast amounts of information, that's what's going on here. So, Suzanne, if you want to pass that around. Uh, so, also, I'm not going to read because uh, time's uh, clock is ticking, but a lot of these... <coughs> Baishadja Raja or yeah, Baishadja Raja sutras describe his pure land. They describe the world that you're going to see in this mandala. They describe all the plants, they describe the lapis lazuli tiled floors and all of that. And like many pure land Buddhas or pure land Buddhas and pure land Buddha sutras, they're visualizations. The whole name of the game is visualization. When you're reading this and it's like, oh yeah, and there's uh, diamond-shaped lapis lazuli things, you're supposed to be imagining them on the ground. And it's taking you on this kind of mental journey. What you should know about Baishadja practice is that it's deeply uh, based in visualizing Baishadja the Buddha, so they go into deep detail, the exact number of little curly cue things he has on his top knot head, and which direction they're curling, and what color they are. They go into great detail, because the whole practice, or not the whole practice, but whew, the bulk of the practice is you're visualizing Baishadja, you're chanting Baishadja, he has a mantra, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment, but you're chanting his mantra, you're visualizing his hair, the curls, the color, the whole thing, and you get very good at this. And they say that as you do this, you will eventually dream about Baishadja, uh, you may even have uh, like uh, hallucinations of him in front of you kind of a thing, and it'll keep getting crazier and crazier, your connection to Baishadja, until eventually the practice is one of you begin to imagine your body is made of lapis lazuli. And there is this slow or quick transformation of, of one's body and basically shedding the mortal feeble body and taking on the lapis lazuli impervious, you know, the strength of Baishadja. That is a deep part of the practice uh, of Baishadja worship, traditionally. Now, he also usually just sits on an altar and people pray to him and are not trying to do a full swap. But there's so, you know, you, got, you should all know, I think you got, all do know, there's so much room in, in Buddhism for so many different ways to do this. There is no Baishadja authority saying, no, 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 no. Only after however long do you... No, no, there's none of that. So I have talked to a lot of different people who have relationships with Baishadja in terms of 
in terms of either overcoming illness or all kinds of things. And the, the, the practices are so varied in terms of people, you know, going into surgery and visualizing that they have the lapis lazuli body. Because it's like, yeah, I need a strong body to go into this. And so that's, again, that's like, that's what this is for. This is what Baishaj is for. Or if you've just got your mala beads, you've got your, your 108 mala beads, and you're doing your chant. Um, Om. This is his mantra. Om Baishadja 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 Samudyate Svaha. Simple, because it's all variations of this. Now, if you didn't, if you've never learned about Tantra, Vajrayana, Esoteric Buddhism, or any of that, you should know that a big part of Esoteric Tantric Buddhism is about chanting. And it's about the power of these words. And so the chant is, Om Baishadja 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 Samugate Svaha. You are saying, you know, Om, I don't know, you know, people sometimes translate that, sometimes they don't, but you're saying, Om, healing, 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 super healing, Svaha. <laughs> like, that is what you're saying. But the idea is that if you say healing, 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 super healing, that it, it will not have the same effect as Om Baishadja 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 Samugate Svaha. So the idea being that in the world of esoteric everything, not even Buddhism, in the world of esoteric, uh, the sound of these things has just as much oomph as the meaning of them. The idea being, though, that if you know that what you're saying <coughs> is Healing, 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 super healing. But you're saying, Om Baishadja 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 Samugate Svaha. Now, now that's powerful. Because yes, the words have power. And even if you don't know what they are, that's fine. But if you do know what they are, that's even better. So that's the idea. Yeah, Fred. Can you say more about this kind of geography? You said the three continents that we're on. Uh, yeah, so this is an old cosmology, which I'll make a little smaller. It's an old cosmology that it predates Buddhism. It is just the worldview that the Buddha was born into, kept, and basically until the Dalai Lama disavowed it a few years ago, it was the main, like, this is what Buddhists thought. The Dalai Lama surprisingly kind of disavowed this worldview, but this idea that there's this... Uh, a disc that forms in space. Of, uh, it's a disc made of wind. And then on that wind, there develops a body of water. And then on that body of water, there develops, or kind of crops out this giant mountain. This is Mount Maru. 
and then these continents float around it, a northern continent, a southern continent that we're, we're on, and then this uh, east and western continent. And there's a lot of interpretations about what these are. Oh, and by the way, there are also 33 celestial realms that in, in kind of get more celestial once you, <laughs> as you go up Mount Maru. Uh, there is, of course, a sun and moon, uh, and there are, are nine hot hills and nine cold hills that are underneath, sort of, they're in the earth, so they're not below the, the wind disk, um, and then all of this is kind of enclosed in a sense. Now, in... The basic mainstream version of this, this is India, this is China, Japan basically, this is Russia, and this is the US. <laughs> That's the normal, like, or no, actually I shouldn't say that. Normally actually this is the Indian subcontinent and these are other lands with, well, some have giants, the northern one I believe is full of giants, the east and west are different. So that's the oldest version, meaning that in the oldest version, this was known, this was the known world to mankind, and that's why the lapis lazuli side of this mountain only is our sky. If you were to go to the land of the giants in the north, they would have a different colored sky. Now that's the old one. The more kind of adapted one <clears throat> is what I just told you. This is India, this is China, this is Russia, this is America, basically. I mean, do the look at an azimuthal northern, um, you know, an azimuthal map from the North Pole, and you'll see basically four kind of continents in that way. There seems to be that type of a, a worldview. But then this whole, like, you know, last time I was uh, in the Himalayas, I didn't see a giant mountain. Uh, what's with this axis of the universe? So then what they start to talk about is like, yeah, well, this is actually a universal axis, and this is actually Earth. And this is Mars and Jupiter or something like that. And that, so this is more like the sun. And these are planets. So they kind of keep changing it, the better telescopes get or whatever, right? But the general cosmology of axis mundi, four land masses, and then the whole thing is sort of in this dynamic swirl because both the disk is a chakra that's moving and then these are in transits or circuits. Was there ever a physical mountain Yeah, I mean, Maru was there. I mean, in, until recently, Maru is, yeah, if you keep going past the Himalayas, if you keep going past Everest, it'll keep getting higher. They're, they're, they say it's there, if you know what I mean. It's only basically recently that they've <clears throat> said it's not there. Or they say only the spiritually adept can see it because it's a spiritual mountain. Or There's all kinds of different things. But... Up until recently, it was just beyond Mount Everest. You. <laughs> Slightly related question. You mentioned the sevens. Were, they were not using a seven-day week at that time. They yeah. Were, they, they, were. Um, they were using, you know, time in terms of the week are tricky, but they were certainly, yeah, yeah, they had a seven-day in terms of a moon day, a sun day, a Mercury day, Mars, <clears throat> Jupiter, and Saturn day. That seems to be pretty culturally 
ubiquitous. Interestingly enough, if for anybody that wants to think about like cultures interacting or whatever, the seven-day week with a sun day, a moon day, a Mars day, a uh, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, that's like everybody seems to be on that. And the Buddhists and in all of India are part of it as well. So, all right. Shall I? Okay, so let's read. So, this is the Lotus Sutra. I've read a few different chapters of the Lotus Sutra. I've read uh, big chunks of the Lotus Sutra. And what I may never mention, that chapter 23 of the Lotus Sutra, which, again, like a lot of the parts of the Lotus Sutra, has sometimes been its own little sutra, just circling around the world, not part of this, but chapter 23, the former affairs of the Bodhisattva by Shajaraja, the former affairs of the Bodhisattva medicine king. So this is by Shajaraja's chapter of the Lotus Sutra, even though his sutra, I didn't read his main sutra, but I'll read this though first. Um, he has just his main sutra, that is him as a Buddha, and it's all about these 12 vows that he makes as a bodhisattva. So I want to read those at some point. But this chapter of the Lotus Sutra is kind of where he is the most famous, if that makes sense. So even though he has his own sutra, it's actually his appearance in the Lotus Sutra where he gets a lot of his fame. And so I'm going to abbreviate it because you guys know the Lotus Sutra. It, it can go on a bit. So I'm going to jump down to this. So this is actually just to tell you what's going on here. This is actually about a past life of Baishadja. So he's not even the two bodhisattvas yet or whatever. This is like lifetimes, eons, kalpas ago. And at that time... For the sake of this bodhisattva, who is Bhaisyadja, but he was at that time called gladly seen by all living beings. That was his name, bodhisattva gladly seen by all living beings. So at that time, for the sake of the bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, and the uh, other numerous bodhisattvas and multitude of shravakas, the Buddha preached the Lotus Sutra. And this is not Shakyamuni, this is... Uh, this is who uh, Buddha, I believe he's called, sun, moon, pure, bright, virtue. So, Buddha, sun, moon, pure, bright, virtue, preached the Lotus Sutra. And this Bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, delighted in carrying out arduous practices. And in the midst of the law, preached by the Buddha, sun, moon, pure, bright, virtue, this bodhisattva applied himself diligently and traveled about here and there, single-mindedly seeking Buddhahood for a period of fully 12,000 years. After that, he was able to gain the samadhi in which one can manifest all physical forms. Having gained the samadhi, his heart was filled with great joy, and he thought to himself, my gaining the samadhi in which I can manifest all physical forms is due entirely to the fact that I have just heard the Lotus Sutra. I must now make an offering to this Buddha, sun, moon, pure, bright virtue, and to this Lotus Sutra. Immediately, 
this Bodhisattva entered into the Samadhi, into the Samadhi, and in the midst of the sky, there rained down Mandarava flowers, great Mandarava flowers, and finely ground hard black particles of sandalwood. They filled the whole sky like clouds as they came raining down. He also rained down the incense of the sandalwood that grows by the southern seashore. Six teals of this incense is worth as much as the Saha world. All of these he used as an offering to the Buddha. When he had finished making this offering, he rose from his samadhi and he thought to himself, though I have employed my supernatural powers to make this great offering to the Buddha, it is not as good as making an offering of my own body. Thereupon, he swallowed various perfumes, sandalwood, kunduraka, turushaka, prika, aloes wood, and liquid amber gum. And he also drank the fragrant oil of the chumka and other kinds of flowers, doing this for a period of fully 1,200 years. <laughs> Anointing his body with fragrant oil, he appeared before the Buddha, sun, moon, pure bright virtue, wrapped his body in heavenly jeweled robes, poured fragrant oil over his head, and, calling on his transcendental powers, set fire to his body. The glow shone forth, illuminating worlds equal in number to the sands of 80 million Ganges rivers. The Buddhas in these worlds simultaneously spoke out in praise, saying, Excellent, excellent, good man. This is true diligence. This is what is called a true Dharma offering to the thus come one. Though one may use flowers, incense, necklaces, incense for burning, powdered incense, paste incense, heavenly silken banners and canopies, along with the incense of the sandalwood that grows by the southern seashore, presenting offerings of all such things as these, he can never match this. Though one may make donations of his realm and cities, his wife and children, he is no match for this. Good man, this is called the foremost donation of all. Among all donations, this is the most highly prized, for one is offering the Dharma to the thus come one. After they had spoken these words, each one of them fell silent. The body of the Bodhisattvas burnt, the body of this Bodhisattva burned for 1,200 years. And when that period of time had passed, it at last burned itself out. After the Bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, had made this Dharma offering and his life had come to an end, he was reborn in the same land of that Buddha, sun, moon, pure bright virtue, in the household of the king called pure virtue. Sitting in cross-legged position, he was suddenly born by transformation. And at once for the benefit of his father, he spoke in verse form saying, Great king, you should now understand this. Having walked about in a certain place, I immediately gained the samadhi that allows me to manifest all physical forms. I've carried out my endeavors with great diligence, and I cast aside that body which I loved. When he had recited this verse, he said to his father, The Buddha, sun, moon, pure, bright virtue is still present at this time. Previously, I made an offering to this Buddha and gained a dharami that allows me to understand the words of all living beings. Moreover, I have heard... This Lotus Sutra, with its 800,000, 10,000 millions of nayutas, kankaras, vivaras, akshobhyas of verses. Great king, I must now at once make an offering to this Buddha. 
Having said this, he seated himself on a dais made of the seven treasures, rose up into the air to the height of seven tala trees, and proceeding to the place where the Buddha was, bowed his head to the ground in obeisance to the Buddha's feet, put the nails of his ten fingers together, and spoke this verse in praise of the Buddha. A continence so rare and wonderful is its bright beams illuminating the ten directions. At a previous time, I made an offering, and now once more I draw near. At that time, after the Bodhisattva gladly seen by all living beings had spoken this verse, he said to the Buddha, world honored one, <clears throat> is the world honored one still present in the world? At that time, the Buddha, sun, moon, pure, bright virtue, said to the Bodhisattva gladly seen by all living beings, <clears throat> good man, the time has come for my nirvana. The time has come for my extinction. You may provide me with a comfortable couch, for tonight will be my pari nirvana. He also commanded the Bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, saying, Good man, I take this law of the Buddha and entrust it to you. In addition, the Bodhisattvas and great disciples, along with the law of Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi and the thousand manifold seven-jeweled world with its jeweled trees and jeweled dioceses and heavenly beings who wait on and tend them, all of these I hand over to you. I also entrust to you the relics of my body that remain after I pass into extinction. You must distribute them abroad and arrange for offerings to them far and wide. You should erect many thousands of towers to them. The Buddha, Sun, Moon, pure bright virtue, having given these commands to the Bodhisattva gladly seen by all beings, that night, in the last watch of the night, entered into Parinirvana. At that time, the Bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, seeing the Buddha pass into extinction, was deeply grieved and distressed. Out of his great love and longing for the Buddha, he at once prepared a pyre made of sandalwood from the seashore, and with this as an offering to the Buddha's body, he cremated the Buddha's body. After the fire had burned out, he gathered up the relics, fashioned 84,000 jeweled urns, and built 84,000 towers, high as the triple world, adorned with central poles, draped with banners and canopies, and hung with a multitude of jeweled bells." At that time, the Bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, once more thought to himself, though I have made these offerings, my mind is not yet satisfied. <clears throat> I must make some further offering to these relics. Then he spoke to the other Bodhisattvas and great disciples and to the heavenly beings, dragons, yakshas, and all the members of the great assembly, saying, you must give your undivided attention. I will now make an offering to the relics of the Buddha, sun, moon, pure bright virtue. Having spoken these words, immediately in the presence of the 84,000 towers, he burned both his arms, which were adorned with a hundred blessings for a period of 72,000 years as his offering. <clears throat> this caused the numberless multitudes who were seeking to become Shravaka voice hearers, along with an immeasurable asamkhya of persons, to conceive a desire for the supreme, <clears throat> unsurpassable enlightenment. And all of them were able to dwell in the samadhi where one can manifest all physical forms. At that time, the bodhisattvas, heavenly and human beings, asuras and others, seeing that the bodhisattva had destroyed his arms, were alarmed and saddened. And they said, this bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, is our teacher, instructing and converting us. Now he has burned his arms and his body is no longer whole. At that time, in the midst of the great assembly, the Bodhisattva, gladly seen by all living beings, made this vow, saying, I have cast away both my arms. I am certain to attain the golden-hued body of a Buddha. If this is true and not false, 
Then may my two arms become as they were before. When he had finished pronouncing this vow, his arms reappeared of themselves as they had been just before. This came about because the merits and wisdom of this bodhisattva were manifold and profound. At that time, the thousand million-fold world shook and trembled in six different ways, and heaven rained down jeweled flowers, and all the heavenly and human beings gained what they had never had before. The Buddha said to a bodhisattva called Constellation King Flower, What do you think? Is this bodhisattva gladly seen by all living beings someone unknown to you? He is, in fact, none other than the present bodhisattva, <coughs> Medicine King by Shadja Raja. Okay, so that's that. Uh, again, that's probably the most famous story about by Shadja. Michael, can you I'm, sort of oh, yeah. quickly give us the significance? I'm going to try. <laughs> it is <laughs> hugely by significant. By, you know. Yeah, Thank so the A... a that's the most famous Baishadja portion of any sutra. He is known for having burned his body for 12,000 years or whatever it was to the, to the Buddha. You should know or keep in mind that this, that event that I just read to you is in some way the origin impetus for the famous Vietnamese Zen monks immolating themselves. There's a relationship there. I'm, I'm not saying that the Lotus Sutra told those monks to go burn themselves. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that when those monks burned themselves, a lot of them pointed to this as their reference. Whether that's a, re a good read of it or not, I'm not sure because there are many a read on it. So, whew, yeah. Yeah, what do I, how, how do you feel about it? Does it seem shocking to you? Does the sort of more uh, metaphor, is, does it come across more? Like maybe he's not literally burning his body type of a thing? No. Questions. Should, questions are cool. Uh, after the first burning, somebody said that he had given the Buddha the Dharma. Mm -hmm. So that's my question. What does that mean? <laughs> How is, how is it that that is an offering of the Dharma? How is that? Yeah, so let me tell you, man. I mean, this is like... Um, so there's something that you... I, I just want to put this on the table and walk away from it, which is that you need to know that there is a tradition in Buddhism, mainly kind of East Asian, Tibetan, definitely Tibetan Buddhism... Chinese Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, there is a tradition of self-mutilation, self scarification uh, in China, chopping fingers off for the Buddha. The, the Zen story I told you of the monk cutting his arm off as an offering to Bodhidharma. Yeah, I told it as a story, but you should know that there is a tradition. And it's complicated. It's so complicated because... A, you know, it's very difficult for anybody else to say what was on the mind of anybody doing anything. And then for me to sit here and say what people are doing is lame. So there's just this phenomena. And yes, it seems like sometimes it's kind of a weird machismo thing of like this. I'll show you how unattached to the body I am. <laughs> you know, kind of a machismo thing. Like this is how tough I am. Um, you should know that in... 
China and Taiwan, I think they do this in Korea, but I'm not positive, but I know they do it in Taiwan and China. When you get fully ordained as a monk, you go through a mutilation ritual in which they take these little incense cones. You've seen them, the little triangular conical incense things. And at the bare minimum, they take three of them and they dab a little, uh, it's a sticky date paste that they make out of dates. And they put them on their freshly shaved heads three in three dots right here. And they let them burn down until they're, they go out. <laughs> and it leaves three s- holes, scars on the forehead. And then you'll see dudes with six or nine or 12 as signs of like how hardcore they are, how many initiations they've gone through, all kinds of stuff. In Tibet, there's a tradition of scarification, usually on the, on the, the, the arm here. Um, they'll take hot, hot knives and stuff and do scarification rituals. It's in there. Uh, you could be like, that's not Buddhist or not. I don't know. I don't know what Buddhist, I don't know what is Buddhism or not. Usually what Buddhists say they're doing is Buddhist to me. And so a bunch of Buddhists in Tibet do scarification rituals. Um, the Chinese do this ritual, cutting off the arms, cutting off the fingers. In China, you used to see a lot more monks that might be missing one or two fingers. They do it as offerings to the Buddha. Um... So I'm just putting that there. It's there. And again, we could argue about whether that's Buddhist, uh, about the nonviolence thing and all of that. That's all very complicated. Over here, though, let's get back to Baishadja because there's a few different things you should know. One, there is this, Just to, I'm just going to start throwing these out there. In Mahayana Buddhism, there is a 10-stage process. These are called Bhumis, 10 Bhumi stages. It's a process to enlightenment first stage bodhisattva second stage third all the way up and these stages these bhumis have very descriptive names and at a certain point i I didn't write them down but at a certain point there's a chunk of them that are all about flaming body or brilliant body illuminating body all of this so there is a a thing in Buddhism that if you reaching a certain point, the body starts to illuminate. Now, does, is this halos? Is this the rainbow body? I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. But there's this thing going on in Buddhism that upper levels of spiritual maturation result in a luminous body. So that might be what's going on there. To me, though, the telltale sign is this line. Let's see. Uh, yeah, the, so this uh, the first burning of his whole body when he when he ingested all the ointments and all the all of that first, right? So after that, uh, after that, the the, the, body, the body of the bodhisattva burned for twelve hundred years, and when that period of time had passed, it at last burned itself out. To me, that's the little telltale Buddhist sign of what they're talking about. So another thing that goes on in Buddhism is they talk, there's a wonderful Pali Sutta, an old Buddhist sutra called the Fire Sermon. Look at this guy. You want to talk about a Bodhisattva, man. (laughs) 
So there is this fire sermon. And if you've read the fire sermon, it's a very short, direct, old Buddhist sutra in which the Buddha says, everything's on fire. The eyes are on fire. The mouth is on fire. Our ears are on fire, burning with desire. The earliest Buddhist sort of, uh, or one of the earliest Buddhist metaphors yeah, we're all sick and the Dharma's medicine. And there's another metaphor that this is a giant fire and it eats and it consumes things of this world to stay lit. I eat stuff to stay lit. I consume media to stay lit. I consume alcohol to stay lit. I consume and consume. It's a giant fire of desire and I feed it with logs of pleasure. That is the Buddhist metaphor that we are on fire. That's the dukkha, the suffering. It hurts because we're on fire and we actually keep feeding the fire and it's getting hotter and hotter. And the way to actually put out the fire is to stop desiring. Desire is, is the fuel. And if we stop desiring, we would stop burning so now, whoa, that's interesting, right? An interesting metaphor, right? Well, did you know that this word nirvana, it means blown out, extinguished. The root of it, nirvan, niban in, in Pali, it's niban or nirvan. Nirvan is if I had a candle lit, candle flame, and I blew the flame out, it would be niban, extinguished, gone. And so what the Buddha is talking about is this is a candle on fire with desire, and I'm just, and then I die, and I just come back because I want more, and I die, and I come back because I want more. But if I could stop the desiring, I would put out the fire. That would be nirvana. A buddha is in nirvana, meaning the desire, the flame of desire is put out in a buddha. Entirely put out. No desire. Does that make sense, right? And the idea is, is that we all have that capability. We all have that potential because it's, it's just that not desiring. And the idea is, is that, that that little moment, there was a little moment today when, when you didn't give in to the desire. Maybe, right? <laughs> but the idea is, is that it all is a buildup of one little moment at a time until we're eventually not desiring at all. But you don't jump from a heap of desire to no desire. They say you can. Take, take it, take a shot. But I want you to just think about it that way, though, that we are talking about a slow process of curbing our desires and that it's just one desire at a time until eventually that's put out. That's what nirvana means. And so when they talk about a bodhisattva incarnating in the world or doing whatever and burning, 
There's another way of saying, oh, he came into the world as a bodhisattva and burned with desire, burned in the world of samsara for some 12,000 years trying to help our dumb asses out of here. And then eventually, what does it say? Eventually it went out. So that's my read on it. There's, oh, and also gladly seen by all living beings. There's all this, um, the, the, even the visualization of the lapis lazuli body Buddha there's this deep thing going on with this Buddha and like, the again, the flame body, the visualization of the body. Um, yes, also in addition to imagining your body as lapis, there is the practice of imagining your body on fire. Don't get the gasoline out. There's no need to, to light yourself on fire. Just you can imagine it. Just imagine yourself, you know, but that's the idea. And so there's practices of like burning away impurities of the body by visualizing oneself on fire and seeing, oh, all those impurities just going away. So, so there's all that. Okay. I would take a stab at it, sort of combining those two things you just said, that maybe uh, the 12,000 years of burning, if we talk about how this is a, a medical healing It's a little bit like Christianity, but like he's burning off like a fever. Like the, the, when you have a fever, you're burning off impurities. And so like he's burning off all the, the suffering by going into this fever kind of thing so that suffering will, will go away on behalf of like humanity kind of thing. It, the healing that's awesome. That's an awesome comment because I, I wanted to add this as an idea um, from the same Lotus Sutra. You know, I had read the um, Perceiver of the World's Sounds, Avilokiteshvara. Avilokiteshvara is the Bodhisattva, the hero of the world's crying. And the, the idea, of course, is that there was a Bodhisattva, Avilokiteshvara, practicing... Buddhism and developed what's called the divine ear and the divine ear, which gives you this ability to hear vast distances and other realms. Well, this Bodhisattva, all she could hear was everybody sobbing, everybody wailing, everybody crying. And it was just like, like, ah, oh, like devastated by hearing collectively everybody's woes, right? You could think of Baishadja as not the hearer of the world's crying, but the feeler of the world's suffering. Which is really just a way of saying exactly what you just said. And I think that's a great read on the same idea. Because there is, I wanted to actually, and thanks again for that comment, because I wanted to try to bring this back to the devotional aspect of this. So you might have noticed that not only in my description of this, not only is the practice of Baishadja very devotional oriented, you really give yourself over to Baishadja if you need his help. It's how it works, right? So not only is there that, but in the stories of Baishadja, it's about him giving his body, him offering up the, the greatest sacrifice, his own being to the, to the Buddha, right? And so I just kind of want to point that out, that this, that act of giving oneself completely is a part of this energy or part of this Buddha, right? And that actually 
That reminded me of one other interpretation. Yeah, so here's one other read or interpretation on the burning body and like what, or not so much the burning body, but this idea of the Buddha or of the Bodhisattva offering his body to the Buddha. I want to just give you another read on that too, because again, some people have taken this literally where they literally have cut off fingers. And for me, Michael Owens and my sensitivities, I'm a little like, that might've been not the right read. You could have maybe just like done it in your mind, kind of an idea. But again, you know, so what is, what is the Dharma? What is Buddhism talking about? They're really kind of talking about you giving up your attachment to this body. That is what it is all about. That is the Dharma, the, you know, the third noble truth. Like that's it, right? That's the idea. And so one way to read this is that this is a poetic Mahayana way of describing this extreme act of dharma. Like it's a very poetic way of describing someone giving up attachment to their body, right? I'll give you another one. So you might have also noticed it was in here too where uh, it said, like, it, the first thing the, the, that Bodhisattva did is he went into a samadhi and he started making it rain heavenly flowers as offerings to the Buddha. And then he had it rain these sandalwood pellets as offerings to the Buddha. And then he had all this. And then he woke up out of it and he was like, you know what? Screw that. I'm going to make the, a better offering. I read that as a classic Mahayana critique of a bunch of people trying to buy their way into nirvana or enlightenment. People, oh, I'm gonna offer the Buddha all these flowers and off the Buddha all of this. What does the Buddha want flowers for? He doesn't want your flowers, he wants you to do it. He wants you to practice. He wants you to give up your body in that sense, right? So I read that little bit where he's like, no, yeah, I'm not gonna offer the flowers and the incense. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna basically put my body or put my mouth, my money where my mouth is in that way, right? That's another way that I read that. It's like, yeah, just offering things on an altar and then being like, good, you know, way to go me. I really did offering there. The Buddha would much rather see you in meditation doing it. That's how I, I read that as well. Which if, if, you've, if you've sat in my sutra classes, you know that a lot of the Mahayana are critiquing where Buddhism had come. That Buddhism had gotten too institutional, gotten too hierarchical, gotten too sexist. And so a lot of Mahayana is about attacking Buddhism and the ways of Buddhism. So it gets tricky if you don't know that. It gets sometimes uh, almost contradictory if you don't know that. But if you do know that, it's a very, you know, these are profound messages. Questions? Uh, I have one more thing I'd like to read, but... So yeah. at the very beginning... Yep. Early, relatively early, you spoke with extreme conviction that the practices to the Basaja, say that. Basaja. Thank you, Basaja, were really, really, really powerful and really, really real. Yeah. So I am curious is this from your personal experience? Yes, very much. How can you speak to us? Oh, yeah, no, very much. And all very, very, very personal things that, you know, you could imagine. Okay. Um, but yeah, where over the years, my 
more intellectual relationship with all of this became, I developed a new relationship, which was lived, experienced, felt, all of that. And that's where I say very powerful, that I attest to it. I mean, I can attest to the power of meditation as well, but I think there's a way... And maybe I'm wrong for doing this, but I always feel like there's a way that maybe we Americans have our chip, a chip on our shoulder against devotion because it's a little too Christian or against that. And so when they hear about worshiping a Buddha or doing the reverence thing, they think that's not real Buddhism or like, you know, that's some watered down Chinese bullshit kind of thing. Like, you know, I've heard all these different attitudes towards different ways of being Buddhist. And, you know, I hope you guys know that I'm trying to celebrate it all. Every possible way of being Buddhist, I think, is beautiful. And tonight I'm saying that this way is really beautiful. And again, powerful. I'm saying, again, powerful that if, like, if you're hurting, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's... A, it's, it, it's and, and are there centers or teachers where this could be practiced, or was this an individual exploration? You know, this, I will tell you this. Historically, by Shadja, the medicine Buddha has always been this sort of uh, lurking figure on the sides, that little like side chapel, um, if you know what I mean. He's never had an exclusive, I don't want to say never, but you know what I mean. Uh, he's always sort of just there if you need him. And it's almost all these different um, temples and monasteries that I've been in and at and to, they'll have their dedicated patron, whether it's Amitabha or whatever, but somewhere there's a Vaishadja because everybody gets sick. Do we know anything about the uh, view of lapis lazuli and the earlier belief systems like Taoism or Zoroastrianism? Um, I mean, not that I, besides the little Christian one I mentioned at the beginning, um, none that I could speak on with any knowledge per se. Um, only, yeah, the only thing I can tell you of interest about lapis lazuli is that it's a really interesting stone in terms of it's only in a few places, but where it is, it's like, there's basically like, like a whole mountain in Afghanistan made of it. It's like, and there's like a giant deposit in Colorado and like a giant deposit in South America. And that's like it. So it's like, there's, it's a lot of it. It's not super rare. But it's interesting that it's just these really large deposits that are very hard to get to deep in mountains. Um, and so whether, and of course, um, uh, the, the Egyptians were lapis nuts. They definitely thought lapis was something special. They're making lapis everything. Yeah, big, you know, amulets, uh, chairs, sarcophagi, the whole thing. So the, the Egyptians knew something about lapis as well. I'm not a big, you know, stone guy or that type of, uh, I don't want to say new age, it's old age stuff, but uh, I don't know too much about all of that. So, yeah. Uh, so one more, just really quickly, because I probably couldn't and shouldn't leave without doing this. Uh, Baishadja, once he became a Buddha, uh, is famous for making these 12 vows. And if you hear these 12 vows, it'll give you a little insight into... Um, Kind of what he's all, all about. So basically he says to the, the, it's actually a bodhisattva named Manjushri who asks the Buddha, hey, will you tell me about Vaishadja? It's like, okay, well, uh, the Buddha tells uh, Manjushri that if you go eastward from here beyond as many Buddha fields, Buddha lands, as there are 10 times the number of grains of sand in the Ganges River, 
you will find a realm known as pure lapis lazuli. The Buddha there is known as the master of healing, the lapis lazuli radiance Tathagata Arhat, perfectly enlightened one, perfect in mind and deed, well gone, he who knows the world, unsurpassed being, tamer of desires, teacher of devas and men, Buddha and Lord. Manjushri, when that Buddha, Lord Master of Healing, the Lapis Lazuli Radiance Tathagata, first set out on the Bodhisattva path, he made these 12 vows to enable all sentient beings to obtain that which they seek. The first great vow, I vow that when I attain the supreme unsurpassed enlightenment in a future age, a radiant light will blaze forth from my body. It will brilliantly illumine limitless, countless, boundless realms. This body will be excellently adorned with the 32 marks of a great human being and the 80 secondary marks. I will cause all sentient beings to wholly resemble me in my illuminous body. Uh, second great vow is I vow that when I attain an enlightenment in a future age, my body will be like lapis lazuli, within and without, bright with penetrating flawless purity. Third, and now I'm about to skip ahead. Like I'm not skipping vows, I'm skipping descriptions of that vow. Third great vow, I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, with infinite and boundless insight and means, I shall cause all beings to obtain all that they need. They shall never lack the necessities of life. I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if there are sentient beings who tread upon heretical paths, I will cause them all to peacefully abide within the path of enlightenment. Uh, I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if there are limitless and boundless sentient beings who cultivate and practice the pure conduct of my teaching, I will cause them all to be able to follow perfectly the rules of conduct and be complete in the three cumulative precepts. I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if there are sentient beings whose bodies are inferior, whose sense organs are impaired, uh, if they're dumb, deaf, blind, mute, uh, hunchback, leprous, convulsive, you name it, such beings, when they hear my name, shall obtain proper appearances and practical intelligence. All of their senses will become perfect and they shall have neither sickness or suffering. Uh, the seventh great vow, I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if there are sentient beings who are ill and oppressed, who have nowhere to go and nothing to turn to, who have neither a doctor nor medicine, neither relatives nor immediate family, who are destitute or whose sufferings are acute, as soon as my name passes through their ears, they will be cured of all their diseases and they will be peaceful and joyous in body and mind. I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if there are any women who suffer from any of the hundred woes that befall women, uh, when they hear my name, they will all obtain transformation. Uh, and will personally experience the supreme unsurpassable enlightenment. Ninth great vow, I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, I will cause all sentient beings to escape from Mara's net. They will be freed from the fetters of all deviant paths. Tenth great vow, I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if according to that which is re recorded in the king's laws, there are any sentient beings who are bound and whipped, tied up and thrown into prison, or who are subjected to capital punishment, uh, if such persons hear my name due to the awesome spiritual force of and my auspices, uh, they will be freed from all sorrows and suffering. Eleventh great vow, I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if there are sentient beings who are tormented by hunger and thirst and who create bad karma in their search for sustenance, if they hear my name and firmly retain it, retain it in their minds and hold to it, they will I will provide them first with incomparably marvelous foods and drink to fully satisfy their bodies. Afterwards, through providing them with 
With the taste of the teaching, they will ultimately become peaceful and joyous and well-established in the Dharma. And the 12th final great vow, I vow that when I attain enlightenment in a future age, if there are sentient beings who are poor or have no clothing, are annoyed, irritated through the day by flies and mosquitoes or heat or cold, if they hear my name and firmly retain it in their minds and hold to it, in accordance with their wishes, they will obtain all sorts of superior and marvelous clothing. They will also obtain every precious adornment, garland, powder, incense, music, and the enjoyment of various performance arts. <laughs> I, shall, good. I shall cause them to have in abundance whatever their hearts desire. And that's that. So it is from those 12 vows, in particular that 12th vow, that Pure Land Buddhists, if you want to call them that, take Bashadja seriously. Because he made these vows... You can see for yourself, he's a fully enlightened Buddha. Ergo, you say his name, Bajaja, 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 Samugati Svaha, and you have all your heart desires. And there you have it. That's all she wrote. My pleasure. Thank you all very much. Thank you for that. Uh, so yeah, that's our lovely dive into Pure Land by Shadja realm.